Acts 12, 20 to 25 for a sermon I've entitled The Death of Herod. Here's what it says. Now he, meaning Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On the appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat at the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, The voice of a god and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. You know, in every generation there are actors who capture the hearts and imaginations of American theater goers. In the 1920s it was Charlie Chaplin and Rudolph Valentino. In the 30s it was Catherine Hepburn and Clark Gable. In the 40s that brought us Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant. The 50s, Marilyn Monroe, Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor, and Richard Burton. Now in more recent decades, some of the big stars have been Harrison Ford, Julia Roberts, and Tom Hanks. But if you were to go back before the invention of movies, say to the 1850s, who would be a big name actor at that time? I can give you one, J.B. Wilkes. Now like many actors before him, Wilkes was born into an acting family. His mother and father both worked on the stage. And as a kid, J.B. was athletic and popular. He was intelligent, but he really wasn't interested in schooling. And he wasn't even sure what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he wasn't all that certain he would grow up. Because once when he was a kid, he went to a gypsy fortune teller who read his poem and told him that he had a, quote, grim destiny, and that he would, be, would have a grand but short life, doomed to die young, meeting a bad end. Well, at age 16, he had two great passions, uh, politics and theater. The first drew him into the Know Nothing Party, and the second brought him to the stage where he made his debut in 1855. J.B.'s older brother, Edwin, was also an actor, a better one than J.B., but the younger one had the physical skills and emotional intensity that always won over the crowds. He was dubbed by movie critics as the most handsome man in America, and the ladies loved him. Well, he played dramatic roles in theaters across the nation. He said his favorite role to play was Brutus, the man who plotted and took part in the death of Julius Caesar. Well, he was a busy man. In 1858, he performed 83 plays that year, and he was paid well for his work. At the time, he was getting $20,000 a year, which is the equivalent today of $700,000. Now, to outsiders, Wilkes had seemed to have everything. But inside, he was seething with hatred and resentment. His older brother supported the Union in the Civil War, but J.B. was a strong opponent of abolition, that is, freeing the slaves. He actually attended the hanging of John Brown, the man who had led a slave rebellion. Well, in one of the theaters where J.B. acted, there was a man who attended on a regular occasion, and Wilkes didn't like this man personally, and he hated him for his politics and beliefs. He supported abolition. Well, a couple of times when J.B. was on stage and this man was in the audience, uh, the actor would glare out towards him and kind of direct the lines of the play towards him, which kind of freaked out his wife, who thought it was creepy. Well, then one night, when this man was attending the theater, J.B. was not performing that night, but he himself was in the audience. And at one point, he got up, he walked to the back, he walked up the steps into the balcony, and there he saw the man sitting with his wife, he pulled out a pistol and put a single shell, a slug, 
in the back of his head. He jumped off the balcony onto the stage and he yelled, Six Semper Tyrannus, which is Latin to thus always to tyrants. And then JB ran off the stage and out the side door. By the way, JB Wilkes was his stage name. The assassin's real name was John Wilkes Booth, and the man that he shot that night was President Abraham Lincoln. Sick Semper Tyrannus, thus always to tyrants. Booth saw Lincoln as a tyrant who needed to be eliminated. The president said he would not only abolish slavery, but give slaves the right to vote. And of course, that would have meant the end of the South as people knew it. Well, today, Lincoln is held up as one of the greatest presidents of the United States. But there are historians, especially with a libertarian bent, who think that Lincoln was indeed a tyrant, who ignored the Constitution, trampled civil liberties, and did irrevocable damage to the Republic by centralizing federal power in Washington. Well, historians can debate whether or not Lincoln was a tyrant, but I think all of us could agree that we're better off without tyrants, and that when one's removed, it's a good thing. It's a gain. It's not a loss. Well, today we have in our story the death of a tyrant whose removal came not from assassination or popular uprising, but rather from divine intervention. So today, to see the power and the justice and the vengeance of God and the unstoppable spread of the gospel, we want to consider this portion of God's word. So let's pray and get into the text. Father, God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Speak to us through your word again this morning, because this word is the word of life, and these stories are real events that have deep theological implications. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to get up to date to where we are, last week we were looking at the first part of chapter 12, where we saw that James was executed by King Herod. And when he got the applause from the Jews, he went on to arrest Peter with the intent of putting him to death as well. But as a result of the prayers of the believers, God sent an angel to rescue Peter, who went back to those gathered to tell them what had happened. And that story ended with these words. When Herod had searched for him, meaning Peter, and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now the Jewish historian, Josephus, writes about this same event that we're going to look at this morning, and he tells us that it took place in Caesarea. Well, how do we want to tackle this story about the death of Herod? Three things. First of all, we want to consider his checkered past. His checkered past. Next, we want to see his preening arrogance. His preening arrogance. And finally, his inglorious end. So his checkered past. You know, I did a Google search on that phrase, hoping to find the origin of it. First thing that came up was a video from a music group called Casey and His Checkered Past. It wasn't very good. I did, I did come across another site, though, that said that that phrase comes from actually the game of checkers. You know, on a board, you have usually red and black squares. And when they say that someone has a checkered past, it means that they have a history of bad things woven in with some of the good. Well, if you looked at Herod's life up to this point, it would be a checkerboard with no red squares. They would all be black. He was really a nasty guy. Now, notice I said this Herod, because there's actually five Herods that are mentioned in the Bible. The first one is Herod the Great. He was the first. He reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Though he called himself the king of the Jews, his father was actually an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, though he was raised in the Jewish faith. His father Antipor uh, was a friend of Julius Caesar who helped him come to power. And then the Roman Senate later declared Herod to be king of Judea. Now, this is the same Herod that when the Magi came inquiring where the Messiah was to be born, sent him to Bethlehem and then later sent his troops to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Of course, Jesus escaped with his family. They went to Egypt. Now, this Herod was a cruel tyrant.
tyrant. He was always suspicious, not only of his underlings, but also of his family. He murdered his favorite wife, Mary Amney, and two of his own sons. The Emperor Augustus used to say it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. That was because as a Jew, he wouldn't eat pork, but he might very well kill his sons. The second Herod that's mentioned, though, is Herod Archelaus. Uh, he was the son of Herod the Great, and he reigned for nine years. He's the one mentioned in Matthew chapter 2. You remember that after Joseph and Mary returned from Egypt, they heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, so they decided to move to Nazareth outside of his territory. The third Herod is Herod Antipas, and that's the one who beheaded John the Baptist and the one through our, um, before whom Jesus stood in his trial. The, second, or the next Herod was Herod Agrippa I. That's the one in our story. And the last one is Herod Agrippa II. That's the one that Paul stood for, uh, before at trial. Now, one of the books that I have in my library is by Tom Ambrose. It's called The Nature of Despotism. And the subtitle of it is From Caligula to Mugabe, The Making of Tyrants. Now, in it, he examines the lives and the rules of various dictators to see what they share in common. One of the things that he pointed out is that almost universally, they were either raised without a father or they had a father that was cruel. Hitler's father was despised by him. Saddam Hussein didn't have a father in his life. He was raised by his uncle, who was a brutal man, a general in the army. Saddam used to carry an iron bar with him wherever he went to protect him from his uncle. Well, the Herod in this story, his father was killed by his grandfather. Can you imagine having that kind of a heritage? Herod's family was like a cross between the Kennedys and the Gambino crime family. I mean, is there any surprise that he grew up to be a tyrant? You know, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, uh, God spoke of visiting the sins of the fathers onto the children up to the third and fourth generation. I mean, how you live has an effect not only on you, but on your kids, your grandkids, and maybe even on your great-grandchildren. But thank God, in any generation, if a person repents and starts moving the family in a line of righteousness uh, rather than wickedness, things can turn around. Sonny Francis was an underboss for the Colombo crime family. He was not only guilty of extortion, racketeering, but a number of murders. He was convicted and sent away for 50 years. He served that time, got out and got rearrested and sent back for another eight. He was in prison until he was 100 years of age he was finally released, he lived three more years, and then he died. His son, Michael, who was also in the business at one time, ended up getting saved. He now speaks all over the country, telling people how Jesus changed his life. Well, this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, was terrible with his money. He was always involved in some kind of scandal, but he was well-connected to the various power brokers in Rome. He was brought up in Rome as a friend of Drusus, the son of the emperor Tiberius. He later became friends with Caligula, who later became an emperor, and also with Claudius, who replaced him. What's amazing was that no matter who was in power, Herod Antipas, or Herod Agrippa, always knew how to ingratiate himself with the present ruler and able to su survive. I mean, he was living proof of that old adage, it's not what you know, but who you know that matters. And like a cat, no matter how many times this guy was dropped, he always seemed to land on his feet. So perhaps it was his political instinct and that man-pleasing approach that led him to arrest and execute James and then go after Peter as well. Well, Herod had a checkered past, and like I said, every square was black. And if all that, though, is just background as we get into the text, our next point, though, is his preening, preening arrogance. Now, preening is what a bird does when it arranges and smooths out its feathers. You've seen ducks come out of the water, and they'll shake off their feathers, 
and then turn their beak and they start straightening them and putting them all back in place. Well, preening when it's applied to humans speaks of dressing oneself carefully, smartly, primping. Think of a bride and her bridesmaids in the dressing room getting ready to go out for the ceremony. Or a young girl before her boyfriend brings, uh, picks her up for prom. Now, most of the time we think of women preening themselves, but guys, I mean, they're not usually like that. You know, they'll, if they're going to go out, they're going to grab some t-shirt off the floor, smell it to see if it stinks, not too bad, then off they go. But there have been guys in the past, and even some now, who really do preen. I mean, think about the French during the age of Louis XIV, the one called the Sun King. The aristocratic men during that time dressed in white stockings, ruffles, and lace. They were dandies indeed. Well, Herod was a dandy. He was well-dressed, uh, smart, and uh, we hear, we'll hear about that in just a minute. But let's get the setting for this a display of his preening arrogance. Look, look at what it says in verse 20. It says, Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now that, that's not good. Uh, when you live under a dictatorship, generally you don't want the government to notice you at all, let alone single you out for anger. Watch a YouTube video yesterday. It was a man, it was a Mexican-American who was living in Siberia, married to a Russian woman. And they were talking about some of the challenge of cross-cultural marriages. I mean, some of the things are what you'd expect, language, food, culture. But one thing the man said that really bothered his wife at first when they got married was when they would go outside, he would talk loudly, laugh, and sometimes even sing. He said, I'm a Mexican-American, that's my heritage. Yeah, but she's a Russian whose parents were raised under communism where you're always being watched by suspicious eyes. The last thing a Russian would do in public is in any way draw attention to himself. It could be dangerous. You know that saying, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy? Well, if your tyrant isn't happy, nobody's safe. It says this, And with one mind they came to him, and having one over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was supported with grain from the king's country. So like President Biden, who went hat in hand to beg the Saudis to increase oil production after he shut down American pipelines and stopped issuing new dr drilling permits. These people from Tyre and Sidon knew that they better get on bended knee and beg forgiveness or they wouldn't be eating in a short time. They probably had to bribe Blastus to set up the meeting, but it worked, for he did just that. Look what it says in verse 21. On the appointed day, after putting on his royal apparel, Herod took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. Now, here again, the Jewish historian Josephus adds a bit of information that's not found in the Bible. He says that when Herod went out to address the crowd, the royal robe that he was wearing was made out of silver thread. And so when the sun hit it, it reflected back like a mirror. You know, they say that man, uh, the clothes make a man. You know, you should dress smart, dress the part. For those of us who are old enough to remember, do you remember Liberace, the piano player? how flamboyant he was when he dressed. Well, I'm sure the people were already cheering wildly when he began to speak, and like those who listened to Stalin's speeches, they knew you wouldn't want to be the first one to stop clapping. It says the people repeatedly cried out, the voice of a god and not a man. Now, the Oxford Dictionary defines flattery as excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interests. It's a form of mental manipulation, messing with a person's mind. By appealing to their pride and feeding their ego, you bring a person around to where you want them to be. You know, the Italian journalist, Italo Cavino, uh, said this. He said, although I am small and ugly and dirty, 
I am highly ambitious, and the slightest flattery, at the slightest flattery, I'm immediately, I start to strut like a turkey. You know, Proverbs 7 talks about the adulterous woman who comes out into the street to seduce a man who's walking by. Starting in verse 21 of that chapter, it says this, So she seduces him with her pretty speech and entices him with her flattery. He follows her at once, like an ox going to the slaughter. He's like a stag caught in a trap, awaiting an arrow that'll pierce his heart. He's like a bird flying into a snare, little knowing that'll cost him his life. So listen to me, my sons, and pay attention to my words. Do not let your heart stray away towards her. Do not wander downward uh, near her path. For she is the ruin of many. Many men have been her victims. Her house is the road to the grave, and her bedroom is the den of death. Now, that makes me think of... Uh, the Egyptian queen Cleopatra. With her irresistible charm, she first seduced Julius Caesar and then later Mark Antony. Plutarch mentioned her ability to speak many languages, he said, including the language of flattery and to turn people uh, towards her will. Well, those who use flattery, uh, especially with people with huge egos, they know how to slather it on like big chunks of butter on your corn. And they said it this time, oh, the voice of a god and not of a man. By the way, isn't that what every dictator is longing to hear? Do you know that Hitler had the Lord's Prayer rewritten, directed towards him? And in communist countries where they proclaim they're all atheists, you notice that they always put up statues that everyone is required to bow before and worship? And the Antichrist, at the end, we're told by Daniel that this little horn will have a mouth that makes great boasts. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're told that he will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That pride and the desire to dethrone God is evidently what led to the downfall of Lucifer, who we know as Satan. In Isaiah 14, 13 to 14, it says this, But you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you'll be brought low, down to Sheol, to the recess of the pit. So such arrogance on the part of Herod just calls forth the judgment of God. Proverbs 16, 18 says, As pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before the fall. And like Humpty Dumpty, he was about to have a great fall indeed. That brings us to our last point, though, his inglorious end. His inglorious end. Proverbs 16, 5 says this, Everyone who's arrogant in heart is an abomination of the Lord. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Well, Herod certainly didn't go unpunished. We read in verse 23, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. Now, Joseph tells us, or Josephus tells us that upon hearing this praise, Herod neither encouraged it, but neither did he try to restrain it. Evidently, he was simply basking in the moment of glory, but his end was not glorious, but inglorious, shameful, pathetic, and actually just plain gross. Luke tells us that he was eaten out by worms, and died. Josephus tells us that he lived for about a week and then died. Now, in preparing for the sermon, I visited a couple medical sites online that gave information about intestinal worms in humans. First of all, it's most common in tropical countries where we have warm weather. Secondly, about a billion people in the earth suffer from them. Third, there's various kinds of worms that people can have, tapeworms, pinworms, hootworms, did you know that the tapeworms can be up to 30 feet long in your body? You can also get them from uncooked meat, 
contaminated water. You can even get hookworms just from walking on the soil barefoot. And they will sometimes come out in your fecal matter when you defecate. Gross. Well, a lot of people have had their bodies eaten by worms after they die, but Herod had his insides eaten out by worms before he died, and oh, how the mighty have fallen. And though he had a week of agony and pain to make him stop and think about his sins and his need for forgiveness, there's no indication he ever repented before he died. Timothy McVeigh, do you remember that name? He was a domestic terrorist who back in 1995 blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. The explosion killed 168 people and injured another 630. After he was arrested, he showed very little genuine remorse. Addressing the families of the victims during an interview, he said this, To these people in Oklahoma who've lost loved ones, I'm sorry, but it happens every day. You're not the first mother to lose a, child, or a, a kid or the first grandparent to lose a grandson or granddaughter. It happens every day somewhere in the world. I'm not going to go to the, into the courtroom and curl up in a fetal ball and cry just because the victims want me to do that. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection when the time came. He didn't speak any final words, but he did pass around a handwritten statement at his execution that had words from the poem Invictus in it. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But you know, his defiance was delusional. It's God who is the master of his fate and the captain of his soul. And on June 11, 2001, God demanded his soul from him, just like 2,000 years earlier, he demanded it from Herod. I'll tell you something, someday he's going to demand your soul. For it's been subject upon all men once to die, and after this comes the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. And the world as a whole is facing a judgment when Christ returns. Speaking of that day, God says in Isaiah 13, 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay though the pompous praise or pride of the ruthless. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you going to be ready for that day? You might think to yourself, well, I'm not as arrogant as Herod. I don't strut around like a turkey. I'm not delusional enough to think that I'm God. But isn't it arrogant for you to keep God out of the rightful place he should have in your life and to somehow think you're going to escape his judgment in doing so? I mean, you can't. You won't. So you shouldn't. If you're not a Christian, you should call off your rebellion against your Creator. He's granted a general amnesty to all the rebels who lay down their arms, surrender to him, and swear allegiance to his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to take the punishment for the sins of those who would believe in him. Resistance is futile, but pardon is free. Now, Herod, in executing James and trying to do the same with Peter, was trying to please the Jews by seeking to impede the progress of the gospel. But you know, everyone in this story needed that gospel message he was trying to impede. The Jews who were applauding him Herod himself, the guards who were led away to be executed, every one of them needed the gospel. Perhaps some of them heard. Probably none of them believed. And all of them perished in their sins. But notice what it says. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and multiply. No earthly rulers, no demonic powers can keep the gospel from going forward. They tried to contain it and 
China, and the church has exploded in numbers as a result. The mullahs have tried to root it out of Iran, but the people are fed up with Islam and they're turning to Christ in droves. They tried to marginalize it, minimize it, and perhaps soon they'll try to criminalize the proclamation of the gospel in America. Our enemies are going to fail as well. We just need to keep getting the message out and watch and pray as God continues to grow and multiply. I'll end with where I began. John Wilkes Booth. You know, after running the side door and riding off on a horse, Booth was later hunted down by a posse and he was shot by a man named Boston Corbett. Sick, semper, Sicario, thus always to assassins and to rulers who kill Christ's followers. Our side wins, but you need to make sure you're on the winning side. That's what matters. Let's pray. Our Father and God, this is another one of those stories. It's dramatic and it's powerful, and it shows again that vengeance is mine. I will repay, as you said. He opposed the gospel. He killed your servants. At the beginning of the story, Lord, it was Peter in jail and James dead. By the end of the story, it's Herod dead and the gospel continuing to spread because nothing can stop the church that Jesus said that he would build. So, Father and God, we pray for grace and mercy for the people here. We pray that you'd open up hearts and minds even today for those who don't know you and for those who listen over the radio and the uh, internet that you would bless all of us for hearing your word. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.